Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an American author. She was born in Boston, but has lived in Germany, Russia, Malaysia and England, with a career ranging from academia to professional gambling. Her sixth novel, Julia, offers a bold, feminist reinterpretation of George Orwell's 1984, expanding upon Winston Smith's narrative to unveil and explore the experiences of women in Oceania. Sandra Newman, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello, Georgina. It's such a a privilege to speak to you. I'm such an admirer of your work. And I often wonder, when I see you written about, people call you an apocalyptic writer, a utopian writer, and also a dystopian writer. And I wonder if any of those three titles really fit you entirely. Well, it's funny. I I guess they do. They seem to be my preoccupations, although I guess one isn't as aware of one's own preoccupations as other people are. You're never aware of that one thing you keep banging on about, but all of your friends can tell you what it is and you sort of know it by the way people, I, I don't know, there's there's this reaction that the people have, they, they like you to be predictable, but they also like to be able to tease you about it. <laughs> it would seem to me that dystopia and utopia, though, are completely diametrically opposed. You'd think so, but dystopia as a genre came out of utopia as a genre, and the two kind of seem inextricable. There's still some sort of confusion or dispute over whether Thomas More's utopia, where the the word came from, is really a utopia or a dystopia, or at moments a dystopia and at other moments a utopia. There's this problem that humans have that we want to perfect the world, but we're not sure we want to live in the perfected world we imagine. Mm. (laughs) And that leads us to think of all the ways it could go wrong. Of course, by the time George Orwell was writing, he didn't have to imagine. He could just look around him. And it seems in your own life you didn't have to imagine some horrific incidents. You wrote in 2010 a memoir called Changeling. And really, it seems that you've had a very difficult time. It's it's interesting. I think that um, I'm never sure if that's really true. It's very hard to to judge your life against other people's lives. So I did, in a sense, like I had a difficult childhood in that my mother had severe mental illness and she committed suicide when I was 13. And it just completely, it completely killed whatever family we were trying to have afterwards. My brother and my father and I kind of just avoided each other after that. But on the other hand, we were avoiding each other in a very nice house in the suburbs with three stories. So, you know, it's it's kind of complicated. I think I think every story is is a bit complicated that way or every true story or at least every story that we're capable of listening to. You know, I'm always conscious that when I was writing that memoir, I actually actually was writing the memoir at a particularly difficult moment in my adult life. And I left out all of the difficulties I was then experiencing because I thought, you know, this is not going to work unless there's a happy ending. So, So I ended it at the happy bit. Yeah. I mean, that was in fact your adoptive family, but your birth father hired a private detective to find you. Yes, he did. And then he he found my mother as well who I had a really long and important relationship with. And she sadly just died last month. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
Yeah, she's a wonderful person. I've just been sent some of her stuff, which includes her framed certificates from her work at NASA training astronauts to do the experiments they do in space, which is just, just a lovely thing to have as a keepsake. How extraordinary. Why did she feel she couldn't bring you up? She was just, she was 22. She and my father weren't together. And it was a time, this is the 1960s, when that was still really difficult to do. You know, there was a lot of stigma. People might not even be willing to rent you an apartment as a single mother or give you a job. And so she she just didn't feel that she personally was up to it. And, you know, I, I think later on, or at least once we knew each other, she regretted that a lot and she was always trying to make it up to me. Mm. I I understood it. I, I thought in her circumstances and where she was at in her life, you know, very chaotic and really struggling, I think that was a good decision for her. But clearly she then went on and did stellar things at NASA, as have you done from what looked like an unpromising start, at one point working as a prostitute. Yeah, I I also... at the. Perhaps that's genetic. Perhaps we just are the sort of people who are a complete wreck in our 20s. But I was I was an absolute train wreck in my 20s. And everybody around me was extremely frustrated with my inability to hold down a job. And I ended up doing things like prostitution and like professional gambling for a while, just because I, I don't know, I, I was let us say, impractical and always upset, like upset about every single thing to a degree that almost, that just didn't make sense to other people. How did that change? How did you become one of the most respected female American authors? Was there a defining moment for you? I don't know. I think it was funny. I I had moved to Gateshead with a a boyfriend, somebody I, I met when I was up in Newcastle for Christmas with a friend. And I ended up living in Gateshead for a year at a time when in in our neighborhood, the unemployment was 45%. And everybody we knew was unemployed. And I was unemployed. And we were all just poor (laughs) and living on benefits. And it gave me the so I just spent an entire year in this situation, trying to figure out a way out of that situation. And something about it was very clarifying for me. It really you know, it made me understand that. I mean, previously I I would get a job and I would find something like morally irreconcilable about the job and I would be unable to do it. And at the same time, I was very afraid of people. So I found being in an office around a lot of other people extremely challenging and I would, it's very socially, socially awkward and difficult. And I found that very humiliating. So the whole thing would kind of blow up. And at that point, I just realized that Nobody was going to accommodate me and I was and if I didn't get past these things, I was going to end up living like this for the rest of my life. And so somehow, somehow I just started to go forward through it instead of allowing it to stop me. It's not the kind of story that I like because I'm not I'm not a lover of stories where grit gets you through. But I think there are situations where where that's the kind of mindset that you need to get through particularly difficult personal problem. You can't be saying to yourself, well, my life has been difficult and therefore I deserve help instead of having things demanded of me. If there's no one there to help you, you just have to try to meet the demands. 
You uh, are an alumnus of the alumni of the fabulous writing program at University of East Anglia. Was that the basis or the start of your your first novel, the only good thing anyone has ever done, which of course was nominated for the Guardian First Book Award? Not really. I had, I had been writing that book for about a year, mostly at work. I, I had managed to find a, a series of typing jobs which allowed me to write while I was at work, and I had written a good deal of that book before. I got onto that program. I mean, it was a game changer really for you, though, wasn't it? Suddenly being in print and for this novel that was widely recognised as a fantastic debut. It completely changed my life and it changed my worldview. It was kind of funny that I had this illusion that a lot of debut writers have that now that I had sold a book, I was going to be financially secure for the rest of my life. <laughs> I quit my job and moved to Colorado and everything. Of course, that was not the case. I, you know, I immediately ran into problems and and more grit was demanded of me to get through them. But in terms of like not only my my consciousness of myself, but the way other people treated me, it, it changed everything. It was really it was really interesting to go from being somebody who in their 30s was working the kind of job that barely paid the rent to being an author who is interviewed by the BBC and how people treated you differently Mm. and how everything felt different. And then in 2007 came Cake, and again, a completely different kind of book, uh, very much showing off your, your versatility. Yes, it was completely different, partly in that it was unsuccessful. <laughs> so that was quite quite shocking for me, I think. I don't want to... The sad thing is that the reviews weren't even that memorable. It's good when you get a, a bad review that's so terrible that you can still quote it years later, but these reviews weren't even, <laughs> even well, that interesting. Quickly surpassed, though, by the country of Ice Cream Star, which, uh, of course, got you nominations for the Folio Prize and the Bailey Women Prize for, for Fiction. This gave us a, a sort of dystopian future America. Tell us a little more. OK, so that that book, that was, I think that was a real breakthrough book for me artistically. It was the book where I began to to be able to do things that were really interesting, I think, and certainly interesting to me. And one thing about it was that it's set in a world where a world of the future where there's been a plague and the survivors of the plague only live to be 18, 19 years old. And it's written in the patois that these people speak, which has developed over the years. Language has kind of drifted on and changed. So it's, you know, mutually comprehensible to English, but it's not the same as our English. And basically the the heroine who is named Ice Cream Star, goes on a quest to find the cure for the plague because her older brother is dying. The Heavens, which you published in 2019, got wonderful reviews. And this was a sort of time travel novel. It's sort of part Elizabethan England, but also partly set in the year 2000. And I wonder why you chose that particular point. Well, really, it was because I came up with the idea... I mean, of course, one loves round numbers, but I also had come up with the idea that you could you could have 9-11 be a sort of hinge to the novel. So basically in, in that book, it's a time slip novel so that the heroine, Kate, has dreams in which she's living a different life in the Elizabethan period. And the dreams, as we as we meet her, have just started to become actually real and detailed And as she has the dreams, she will wake up from one of these dreams and find that the things that she's done in the dream, which seem pretty mundane, have somehow altered the world 
because it really is the Elizabethan period. She's really doing things that change things. And so in the year 2000, things have altered. And the thing that I think was really interesting to me about the idea was once I realized that you could start this in a year 2000, that's not our year 2000, but is in a lot of ways that subtly a lot better. So it's it's a world where the president is a woman who's a member of the Green Party, like things have really been done to to stop climate change. There's just much more equality, there's more care of the poor, but it's just sort of permeates the world. It's not it's not really in your face. They're just going about their lives and you sort of gradually realize that this is not our world. It's a much more forgiving, warm world. But as she goes back in time in her dreams, she makes things worse and worse and worse. And the crossover point where it is our world is 9-11 so that it's recognisable. And of course, she suffers from some kind of psychosis, which is something that from your own background, you know a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's left deliberately unclear whether it's really psychosis, I think. I mean, actually, for me, the writer, she doesn't have psychosis. She's just misdiagnosed as psychosis because people don't have a language for somebody who really goes back to the Elizabethan period in their dreams. (laughs) But, But you can read it the other way. Like, I wrote it deliberately so you could read it as a real psychosis. And I've had a lot of... I mean, I don't have it, but my first husband had schizophrenia and my stepdaughter also has schizophrenia i mean you i call it schizophrenia but they people with schizophrenia tend to get to cycle through all different diagnoses depending on which drug is working and which diagnosis is popular that day and it's you know i've been very familiar with how it impacts their lives and how they have to live in the world as people to whom all these these other things which are considered fantasies by other people are persistently real. As a schizophrenic, you can sometimes pretend that you're, I can only call them delusions. I kind of don't want to call them delusions in this context though, because Mm. I, I think it's not helpful to just, it's dismissive and it's a reality, it's a person's reality. And that usually remains persistently real, even to some degree after you're taking medication you just learn how to cope with the fact that your reality doesn't map onto other people's reality. And it's an incredibly lonely situation. So there's that, but then there's also how the disease affects the people around them and how difficult it is to maintain relationships across that barrier. Absolutely. I would like to just have a quick look at your nonfiction because these are books that I think everybody should read. The Western Lit Survival Kit, How to Read the Classics Without Fear. Tell me uh, the sort of nugget of this, because you're, you're trying to make classic literature accessible and less intimidating, and I'm afraid a lot of people are afraid of it. Yeah, I think people, well, to be fair, a lot of classical literature is, is actually difficult to read. But I think we underestimate the degree to which it's difficult to read just because for somebody who isn't steeped in the culture it came from, it's boring. And, you know, we don't like to talk about this. It's Mm. the boredom factor is probably the greatest obstacle in reading classical literature. But once you get over that and realize that's the obstacle and you just have to get through it, there's this interesting thing that happens. There are some classics, certainly Dante. Dante, there's, there's an example, especially when you get past the Inferno. It can be intensely boring, but it's still weirdly worth reading. It's like incredibly rewarding. Afterwards, afterwards, you never regret that you went through it. And the parts that aren't boring, they, they kind of light up and they light up your brain in these great ways. 
And also you can have an experience with, with one of these books where you're trudging along and trudging along and then suddenly it kind of takes light. But I had this with Tristram Shandy where I, I really struggled with the first, I don't know, to, with the first 50 pages or so. And I had to read it three different times. But then the rest of it was bliss. So, so I think that's a much more common experience with classical literature. And once you start to, to trust the process and to understand that these books have lasted for some reason, and you may not always at first be able to guess what the reason is, it becomes a really worth, worthwhile endeavour. Mm. I just want to flag up for our listeners that they should definitely have a look, if they are writers at your co-authored works, How Not to Write a Novel and Read This Next. And, and that is guidance for readers navigating literature, both books hugely worth having a look at. Coming back to your work, of course, The Men, which you released in 2022, your fifth novel, is an extraordinary piece of work. And in some ways, Julia, your most recent novel, grows out of that. Tell us about the premise where all individuals with a Y chromosome have vanished. Yeah, it's a it's kind of based on a genre of, of feminist utopia that was particularly popular in the, the 1980s, where there's a world where there are only women or the men and the women are segregated and live complete in completely separate societies. And sometimes there's warfare between them. And sometimes there are all kinds of different situations. But the basis of it is the premise that if you only had women, it would automatically be a communitarian utopian society. Children would be raised in peace and everything would be wonderful. And either there would be no war or if there were still men around, there would be war between the men and the women, which the women would easily win because they would be freed from the bonds of the patriarchy and therefore the, their science would be more developed than that of the men. And I always was fascinated by these. And I think as a troubled kid going through the things that, well, kid, I was like in my twenties, but <laughs> going through the things that I did in my twenties, a lot of which, you know, when you're a girl out in the world, kind of without much of a support network and without any money, you encounter a lot of sexual harassment and, and even sexual violence. So I was really, I was really obsessed with these issues and, it, and reading these books was kind of a lifeline for me at that time. But now, you know, as an adult revisiting that idea, I feel really differently about it. It's, it's funny because they, writing my book, like a lot of it was about how actually having a fantasy of a perfect world that involves either killing or excluding an entire kind of person it's actually not a great route to go. That's not a great place to go in your mind. And, and especially like in our days when it seems to be an, an increasingly popular idea for solving problems that you just get rid of the, the wrong ethnicities or the people of the wrong religion or the people who believe differently from you and then everything will be fine. Or sometimes you segregate these people like there's increasing in the US, there is always a constituency that wants to split up the country, to allow the South to secede from the nation at last, and then all of our problems would somehow be solved. So this book was kind of written about and against that idea. And in terms of you personally, would you like to see all men eradicated? No, I actually, like, I'm one of those, I think not only do I get along very well with men and have a lot of sympathy for for masculinity as a position that's kind of imposed on you, you're, you're out in the world, and there you are, you have to be a man somehow. I find it kind of great. You know, I think that 
femininity and masculinity for all the problems they've given us are, are kind of great. So I think like, I really think that the, the new thinking about gender is a lot better than the old thinking. So the idea that you can be gender fluid, that you can be gender neutral, that you can have no gender, but that would be alongside people who were just cisgendered and were men who felt that they were men and were lucky enough to be born in a male body, women who felt that they were women, you know, the, the femininity in masculinity can be more identities we inhabit by choice and enjoy and that we enjoy in other people mm. or not freely. Like that seems to me to be by far the best solution. And I hope that we can get people to see that it's actually just a really nice solution that benefits everybody and actually doesn't threaten you. But so far, a lot of people seem to find it obscurely terrifying, which I do not understand. Mm. Of course, it's a controversial topic. And your book, The Men, was hugely controversial. It ignited lots of debates and people really spoke about it and talked about it. And I guess some of the people who were thinking about it was the uh, the estate of the late George Orwell, because they then approached you to write this book, Julia. Yes, that's right. So they had been they've been casting around for somebody to write this book for a while. And I guess it's interesting. I, I often wonder who all of the other people were who they considered and rejected. I know that over the years when 1984 was still in copyright and they could say no to people, they have been approached by a lot of people to whom they said no, because it's a, it's a pretty, I don't want to say an obvious idea, but I guess it is an obvious idea to rewrite this book from Julia's point of view in the context of a world in which there are a lot of feminist retellings of classics. And 1984, the character of Julia is particularly problematic. And the way she's handled, which I, I guess was not obvious at the time because people just didn't think about how books affected female readers. But it's a real obstacle in the book for female readers. It's very hard to read his writing about Julia and how he treats that character. And it's hard to read some of the some of the more direct misogyny in the book and the way feminism is treated as part and parcel of totalitarianism as something that's imposed on us against our, our nature and makes us unhappy and warped. I love the way that you remain faithful to the plot, but you're expanding all these things that, that Orwell just gave us hints about. You tell us more about the geography, about how things work, about the history. You give us the backstory, if you like. Uh, you tell us about Julia's hostel and, and all sorts of things. You, you explore Artsem, which, of course, is the, is the insemination programme. And yet the book also moves forward. It gives us a different feeling at the end, which I'm not going to reveal, than 1984 leaves us with. And I wonder how, how, much, how much leeway his estate gave you in terms of doing that. And also how much his vision of totalitarianism, Stalin, etc., which inspired the novel, was true for you. Was it his world, his version of totalitarianism, or were you now thinking about something closer to us historically? Mm. OK, to answer the first question first, the estate actually had very little to do with the book. And I know it, it, it sounds like a little suspicious. It sounds, well, of course you would say that, but, but actually they, they saw, uh, I wrote an outline in the first chapter before they publicly endorsed the book and they were okay with that. There are a few notes on the outline, but they were really more like the kind of, they weren't political, let's put it that way. It wasn't that 
they felt that this was, you know, a distortion of their vision of Orwell. It was just that they thought this part of the plot was not going to work. And then we went forward. And from then, I just wrote the book. Basically, there was there was no back and forth. And really, you know, I would say that people, I don't know, like there was a there was a lot of trust between us, I think, from our from our early conversations, we were kind of on the same page. So so there was not really much interference. And there was certainly no calls for me to change anything. And as far as the the vision of totalitarianism, I think George Orwell's George Orwell's concept of totalitarianism, I think, is fantastic. Like it's incredibly, it's incredibly true to what people who live under such regimes experience and to the psychology of it. And people in North Korea, people who survived Stalinism, people who survived Nazism have all kind of said, you know, how did he know? How did he understand us so well? So like in no way did I did I want to go back and like <laughs> say, oh no, this is my vision. But, but I think he also, he's in some way that he was pursuing a particular aim, which was to horrify us with totalitarianism, to make it as frightening as possible. Mm. So he turns his book into a horror novel by the end, where O'Brien is like this perfectly powerful, perfectly intelligent embodiment of totalitarianism that is unstoppable and there's no possibility of opposing it. And of course, that's powerful and you can feel that. And that's definitely a real thing that people feel under totalitarianism. But it's also not what turned out to be true. And so I I think that I was able to go back and say something new about it. Like, for instance, you know, to try to convey the idea that the the torturers of Stalin were not these charismatic supermen like O'Brien. They were really mediocrities and sycophants. They, they They weren't people who were deeply impressive to those around them by any stretch of the imagination. And that's just a different point. It's a different, you know, if you're you're trying to show more of the squalor of the situation, not only physically, but mentally, which and the corruption and the, you know, the everyday compromises that people make and how society like that really runs on bribery and and not just the lies of doublethink, but the, the petty lies of people who look the other way when someone else breaks the rules. And then the fact that a lot of the denunciations are coming not because of some sort of breach in party doctrine, you know, not because you're not a good party member, but because your neighbor has a grudge against you mm-hmm. because you are sleeping with their wife. You know, that's that's probably just as common a cause of somebody being denounced and arrested as them actually not believing in the dogma. I love the way the book goes into women's relationships with each other and just so much that that you explain about the book. And I, I actually felt that it wouldn't have been necessary. This is going back to how to read the classics. It wouldn't have been necessary to actually read 1984 to enjoy and understand this book. Yeah, I hope that's the case. And I, I, I know that a couple of people, a couple of reviewers had had read my book and then read 1984 instead of the other way around to see how it worked. And, and they were and they said it really worked and actually advised that other people should do it that way. Yeah, um, yeah. And just finally, I mean, so so Julia's job is to fix plot machines in the Ministry of Truth's fiction department. And I know this has been picked up on a, in a couple of reviews, but, but it does seem to me that you are fixing the problematic bits of the plot for us <laughs> in 1984. 
I was certainly trying to do that, both for my own sanity and for the reader. Because it is, you know, if you're if you're an admirer of Orwell as a woman, 1984 is really difficult to read. And it's it's really difficult to read any book by a male writer you admire who seems to genuinely, like unfeignedly, sincerely despise women and not consider them to be fully human or to be equal intellects. Mm. And it's hard, like the, the world of 1984 is constructed around this. It's a world in which women are not like men, <laughs> you know, and in which women's lives don't really ultimately matter enough to be considered. So yeah, I, th- I think in, in writing a version of that where it's, it's a world where women really are people and really have the lives that they would have. It's in a sense, I think, a, a companion volume. It makes 1984 a better book. Sandra, thank you so much. Thank you, Georgina. That's Sandra Newman, who is the author of Julia, which is published by Granta Books. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tanzan Howard, Mariella Bevan and Harrison Warlock. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.